Hi everyone, I'm Margie Alanis and this is Farm Her Talks. Thoughtful conversations to connect and inspire the farm her in all of us. This episode was so awesome the first time around. We're pulling it back out of the vault, dusting it off, and putting a little more farm her sparkle on it. Hello, I am here with the farm herd today and we are headed into an episode with... I need to start that again. <laughs> I'm sorry. Really long. <laughs> they say don't start it again, just keep going. Okay, so sometimes things just don't come out like you hope they do, right? Right. I know everybody is with me and that's the way that my voice is working today. <laughs> And it's only the morning. So anyway, uh, we are celebrating Women's History Month right now. And um, I know I have done a handful of interviews already around this, uh, talking to me about what I think matters about Women's History Month. Um, Obviously, it's a month to celebrate women. It started in 1981. and it was uh, became legislation then, and it is a way for us to really celebrate who we are and and what we do, and the women out there who've really paved the way. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, and it's a, a fun thing to get to talk about. So, in that, I'd love to open it up to Jen and Carly here. Whoever wants to jump in first, yeah. what does Women's History Month mean to you? I think it's super important because um, you know we talk a, a lot here. If you can see it, you can do it, and I think that women bring something totally different to the table in regards to leadership. And I think for uh, these young women who are even remotely interested in being in a leadership role, I think the more they see women in that position, the more inclined they are uh, to maybe go towards that path. Uh, but I also think it's really important for these women who are in leadership roles to mentor these younger women and show them, you know, how it can be done and how they can accomplish that. Uh, because I do think we bring something that's very valuable um, to the table. Mm-hmm. I would agree. And it, yeah, like you said, it's a little bit different on how we do it, a little more thoughtful, I guess, um, in a way. And even even outside of leadership roles, even if it's on the farm, mm-hmm. I remember the other day I had to go and do chores by myself and it's pretty difficult right now with how we have it set up. We're not quite done with everything, but. And the fact that there's 14 feet of snow yes. on the ground. Yes. It was in ice. It was just, it was difficult, but mm-hmm. Clint wasn't home and I had to go do it. And I, on my way home, I kept telling myself I can't do it. And then when I got home, I'm like, yes, you can do it. You can do everything mm-hmm. that he does. You've done it. The, your whole life, just go out and do it. And I think that's a great mantra for all of us to have in any sort of role that we want to take, whether it be even motherhood or friendship, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Yeah. If you want it, you can do it and you can have it. Yeah. I think it, it's, uh, I'm really, really good. I mean, I get like an A plus in thinking about all the ways that I probably can't do something yes. too before I actually try to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. But when you actually just put your foot out there, people ask me that, that a lot about Farm Her. They're like, how do I, how do I like run after something? I'm like, you just have to like talk yourself into the fact yeah. that you can try something and mm-hmm. then like com- that builds confidence, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, that's how we work as women. And Jen, you said something uh, and it led into Carly's too, I know, but I think, you know, it's a really important thing to remember that no matter what your role is, that there are people out there listening and right. uh, whether you're in an official mentor role or not, you know, how you present yourself and mm-hmm. uh, how you talk about yourself and how you portray your position, whether no matter what that is, it matters. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, it, if all we do is put ourselves down, 
and I know I did just say that I'm really good at like doing all these things, but, <laughs> but it's true. Like if, if that's all that we show somebody, then it makes it more okay. And mm-hmm. let, let's, I, I think that's one of the things I love about farm her is I may not always be the best at being a cheerleader for myself, but man, I love being a cheerleader for other people. Right. Yeah. And so we all need a little bit more of that in ourselves mm-hmm. in, in that conversation, yeah. I think. Yeah. And you never know who's watching you mm-hmm. regardless. And like you said, even if you're not in an official mentor role, you're probably a mentor to somebody and you just don't know it yet. So make sure and reach down I know I'm involved in our FFA alumni, so I get to work with a lot of younger girls. Mm -hmm. Um, And I never thought that I could bring any value to them, but there's a lot of value and experience and sharing that is really valuable. And they're always paying attention. Mm -hmm. I know, right? Mm -hmm. Good job, young young women. (laughs) But I, I know, and you know, I think it's always one of those things that they want to figure out their path and where they're going to mm-hmm. go. But it's like this building block of, of all of these people that they can see and women like who we're going to talk to uh, in this upcoming episode, Peg Armstrong Gustafson, who was one of the first women uh, who was a national FFA officer back when women were first able to be in the organization or Jennifer Houston, who's mm-hmm. one of the first women to be the president of the NCBA. I think, you know, Having those people out there, those are all building blocks, yes. right? Stepping right? stones yeah. for yeah. other women to to join the ranks. Yeah, it's it's so true. So I, I call it Farm Her First. If you look up that hashtag on Facebook or Instagram, you'll see many times in my journey with Farm Her where I've experienced things for a first time. But these are some really big Farm Her First that we're going to be talking about on this episode today. And here on the phone, I am joined by Peg Armstrong Gustafson. I hope I said your last name right, Peg. Absolutely correct. Wonderful. Well, welcome to Shining Bright. Thank you very much. I am honored to be on the phone with you. Yes. So, um... Let's just jump right into uh, learning a little bit more about you, Peg. You and I have actually not met in person before, but I found out about you through our Iowa FFA Foundation, and um, they spoke so highly of you and told me about the incredible role that you have played in Iowa FFA and National FFA as well. Um, But let's take it back a little bit before that. Can you tell me about a connection maybe that you had to agriculture growing up uh, and and what, what put you in there? north of Decorah, and at that time, as we all know, every able-bodied person on the farm helps with the farming operation, so I learned a great deal from my mother and father about farming both crop and animal, and uh, the importance of it as a, as a kind of self-contained uh, entrepreneurial environment, and I was inspired by that, and I realized that I needed to learn more, and we had a progressive vocational agriculture instructor by the name of Clayton Wanksness at the uh, North Winnesheek High School. And he encouraged young women, even before they were involved in vocational agriculture and FFA, to take his classes and to also learn more. So that was my foray into the formal education side of vocational agriculture, which was very important. And then the, what I call the laboratory side, which was the Future Farmers of America, which taught you the um, aspects of running a business, 
and an organization, parliamentary procedure, and those types of things. And one of the real turning points happened to be with the extension service. Uh, in our class, they were talking about the fact that the Winnesheet County Extension Service was going to do a special program on improving the production of milk uh, in dairy operations, and we had a small dairy operation of 15 cows. I went to that, I listened um, along with my father, and I decided that night that I was going to start the next day running the uh, milking operations for our farm, and Dad agreed to it, and so I started milking cows and becoming more involved with it. So I really owe it to a progressive vocational ag instructor, which we almost always need to thank educators for our epiphanies. And then the other one was the extension program uh, in Winnesheet County. Both very important pieces to the puzzle for anybody involved in agriculture, I I have learned. Uh, I was in 4-H and, you know, that that is an extension program, too. And I I just know, like, you know, having kids introduced to these things is is just amazing. And, and then having those educators that push you or invite you in, right, and, and open their arms into their exactly. classes is huge. Uh, if you don't mind my asking, um, so what year did you first enter into FFA? And I ask because we are at a point where this year is a celebration of uh, 50 years of women in the FFA organization. That is correct. And I can tell you exactly. I was a freshman in high school and it was the fall of 1972. And that is when uh, Dwight Sigmiller, who is an Iowa native and still lives in Iowa and is the head of the Hills Bank, was elected the national FFA president from our teeny tiny FFA chapter. And he was the fourth in a legacy of four individuals that were national officers back to back, which was an historical first in and of itself. So if you ever want to talk to those four individuals, um, I would highly recommend it. And he was also the person who awarded the first American farmer to a woman, because that would have been the first time that a woman would have been able to receive the American farmer degree after four years being in vocational agriculture, FFA. And that didn't start until 1969. Yeah. So that that was the year that I started into FFA was in 1972. And uh, I I know this, but I would love I'm I'm going to introduce it, and I'd love for you to talk about it. Uh, so you went on to really uh, break ground for women in Iowa, especially, but nationally in FFA as well. You were Iowa's first female state president, the first female national officer candidate from Iowa, and the first female national officer elected. Uh, from Iowa. So you really set the bar and, and broke so many barriers. Um, but can, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Sure. Thank you very much. And wow, you have done your research. Uh, the first thing with that was that I did become the first state officer. And in the state of Iowa, uh, being a female, that you can do that I was actually the first female state officer when I was elected the state reporter in 1975-76. And the president of the organization usually comes out of a previous state officer group. And so then in 1976, I was elected the first state president that was also a female at that point in time. So I served in that capacity. And then I uh, went on in uh, in the fall of 1977 and ran as a national officer, and yes, was the first female national officer from the state of Iowa, and the second female officer ever elected. The previous year, a young woman by the name of Julie Smiley from the state of Washington was elected, 
but this was the first time that a woman, um, this was the second time a woman was elected a national officer, but the first time from one of the really um, intense uh, row crop and livestock production states. Yeah, which is is just amazing. And so I, I guess I have to ask, at the time, did you realize that, you know, this is something that people are going to still be talking about, you know, 40 years later down the road? You know, I, I, I didn't fully comprehend that. There's no way that an 18, 19, 20-year-old can do that. I had graduated a year early from high school in uh, 1975, so when I was elected in 75 as a state officer, I left high school and I went to college and all of those types of things were all new, both for my family, because no one in my family had ever gone to college. And it was also new because these were uncharted uh, waters. But I have to say that as I went through each one of those, none of it would have been possible without the absolutely total equality focused individuals who were in places of of influence and leadership who supported me. That was previous national officers like Dwight Sig Miller and um, Tim Burke, who uh, were the two that I had the most close association with who were national officers. People like my ag teachers, Mr. Gerald Barton, who was the state advisor. There were people across the country who didn't see whether you were male, female, or anything else, uh, what your ethnic background was, they just saw young people looking for a career and supported that all the way to our business partners. One of the greatest mentors I had was Mr. Raleigh Hendrickson, who was the corporate vice president for Pfizer Inc. and was the president of the ag division of of Pfizer pharmaceutical out of New York and a man by the name of Dr. Owen Newland, who was with uh, Pioneer Hybrid. His father helped found it. And then he went on to leadership and Owen is still uh, alive and well today and is a continued mentor. And had it not been for those individuals taking a young person, I would have never been able to accomplish the things that we did. So I'm humbled by it. But no, I never thought it would last this long. It's a theme we hear a lot. Those mentors matter. And so, Peg, we were talking about... Uh, your involvement in FFA and uh, those positions as leaders. So w- when your FFA career started to come to a close and uh, where did you go from there? I, I always love to hear. Um, I-, I think FFA brings so much to the lives and enriches young people so, so, so much. And so I love to hear like where this experience took you. Well, thank you for that. And and you are so right. And you know that it had an influence in your life as well since you were a member of a youth organization with the 4-H. As we all know, all of those organizations help young people really identify where their passion areas are and and help provide tools for them to be able to accomplish their dreams. And Future Farmers of America was mine. And once I finished up being a national officer, I returned back to Iowa State University to complete my education and then went into work after that. I was hired by Pioneer Hybrid to work as their first female uh, product manager uh, for the Central Division. Now, the Central Division at that time included most of the states in the Midwest um, from Missouri North and over to North and South Dakota and Nebraska and Kansas. Uh, So it was its own seed company, the largest in the world at the time, and it was still a part of uh, Pioneer Hybrid, which was even bigger. But the key point of that was I was the first product manager. They'd never had anyone in that area. They had originally had two women who were in research, so they were very progressive. But uh, uh, Dr. Owen Newland 
and a man by the name of Robert Dahlberg uh, were the two individuals who really helped me in my career and took a chance hiring the first woman in that and then supported me through that. And so I was able to experience an absolutely wonderful career at Pioneer Hybrid for 20 years, um, uh, ultimately serving as the uh, global executive vice president for marketing and uh, product development. So uh, I couldn't have asked for anything more wonderful. And uh, I owe it all to the vocational agriculture and the future farmers of America I'm humbled that you're highlighting my career, but the real value of all of these youth organizations are the young men and women all across the country who, who are engaged in their passion areas and contributing because it's at that local level that it matters the most. That's where you can use those skills of leadership, citizenship, servant leadership, and a sense of business and really create a, a dynamic economic environment and also a great community environment. So all of those young people who maybe weren't a national officer in the FFA, in my mind, they're the greatest ones because they day in, day out use those skills. And I personally will tell you there isn't a day, and I mean this very sincerely, there is not a day that goes by that I don't use something that I learned in vocational agriculture and uh, what I learned as a member of the Future Farmers of America. I, I don't doubt it one bit. I can hear the passion in your voice and I love conversations like this. Um, so I I know you talked about community involvement and um, that, that ground, like on the ground stuff that happens through FFA and in um reading some about you, you have gone on to really be a solid part of of the community here in central Iowa and beyond um, as it relates to so many different things. I mean, you are you are engaged and you are involved and you are uh, making a difference for so many people. Can you talk to me a little bit about what you do today and uh, the reason also that you choose to engage yourself in community so heavily? Absolutely. I, I still follow the adage to whom much is given, much is expected. And my parents from day one taught me that you should give more than you take from the world as a whole. And I feel they were very, very wise in um, instilling that kind of value system in our entire family. So as a result of that, um, and also to give thankfulness and gratitude and uh, honor the people who supported me, I believe in paying it forward. So those service uh, and uh, servant leadership things that I've done were yes for me because they were in many passion areas that I thought, but every time I went to those meetings and participated and supported their future goals, I always was remembering the people who helped me get there and, and hoped that at some place in there, there may be another individual inspired to pay it forward um, as part of, of their life journey. So the things I'm very involved with are in the area of conservation, human rights, I am really very passionate about climate and climate change. Uh, I uh, believe that we need to make sure that we're keeping a quality of life for people, whether it's for recreational points of view or if it were them to look at providing additional services to individuals in need. And I, I absolutely love what you're saying, Peg. I just want to jump in right here and talk about a few things sure. that I have heard you talk about that are resonating really deep with me right now. And uh, to start this off, you said, to whom much is given, much is expected. And I love this. You know, we are uh, blessed to 
live in a country where we are free and we have the freedom to go do whatever we want. And I am a firm believer that all of the opportunity is out there for whoever wants to run after it. Exactly. Um, and much is expected and you're right. And, and I think giving back and uh, providing something for that next generation and providing a platform for them and providing a jumping block for them is so, so, so important, especially in agriculture, because um, it, it's a constantly changing landscape and it may not always look like a young person who can go back to that family farm. It may have to look different for different young people, or maybe there was never a family farm and they want to get engaged in it. So uh, using what you have and giving back to the world. And I want to talk real quick about a recent GROW event that we had for young women. We just wrapped up our uh, GROW by Farm Her event in Washington, D.C. We had we were overbooked. We had uh, about 130, uh, 140 maybe young women there. And um, it was these days are meant to inspire, empower and engage young women in their uh, opportunities and roles in the ag industry. And we had this like super engaged group of young women. And and I'm relating this to what you said, Peg, because yep. um, we we have so many blessings at Farm Her. And one of the biggest things that we believe in is providing that platform for the next generation and helping connect them. Uh, that's the biggest thing I can see myself helping them is is understanding that if you have that network, that is power. That that is power and that is that is your safety net. That is everything. So finding that network and starting to gain those skills on how to build that network and just the knowledge that you need to do that. So we talk about that a lot at these grow events. So Peg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And thank you for what you do. You make it possible for others to be inspired and uh, that is a gift in and of itself. So thanks for the opportunity today. We are talking about women who are really making waves in this industry or who have made waves in this industry as we uh, are nearing the end of Women's History Month here. And so here on the phone, well, here first of all, first of all, here in the studio for the rest of this TV, uh, not TV show, radio show. Where <laughs> am I today? What am I even doing? Uh, I've got Jen from Hello. our team and Carly. Hello. Yes, a little farm herd here. And we are talking with Jennifer Houston, who is the president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for having me this morning. Yes, yes. Well, uh, I don't know. Have you guys had a tough winter like we have down there in Tennessee? Well, not that I've been here a lot, but it has been <laughs> extremely wet since about last uh, September. It's been raining, so not a uh, terribly cold winter, but rainy, rainy and mud up to our wazoos. That sounds like enough to be frustrated all the time, just like snow might be, right? Yeah. So Very uh, gray, and, gray and wet. Yep. Well, let's just cross our fingers for spring to show up here really soon. So, okay. Well, Jennifer, um, thank you for, again, for joining us today. So let's take this back a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in agriculture? Did you grow up around it? I did. I grew up on a cattle, hog, and horse farm in West Tennessee. Um, and so I spent all my young years working on the farm and, um, showing cattle, showing horses, went to school at the University of Tennessee, got a degree in animal science. That's where I met my husband and he and his family had a livestock auction market in Sweetwater, Tennessee, which is in the Eastern portion. So after we got married, um, 
I worked for USDA for about five years and then came back to the market full time. So that's been my paying job uh, for all this time is being in, in business with my husband for the livestock auction market. Yeah. And you guys raise cattle as well yourselves? We do. Yeah, we do have a lot of cattle. We do a lot of stalker cattle, heifer development. And then being in the marketing business, we ended up feeding a lot of cattle, uh, usually in the panhandle of Texas. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, so um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with NCBA? What what has that path been for you? Well, uh, growing up, my family was always involved in ag politics. My dad was. And then after I got married, Mark's dad actually was a former executive secretary um, with what was then Tennessee Livestock Association, precursor to the Cattlemen's Association. And at the market, they always did a 10 cents ahead checkoff long before the National Beef Checkoff was passed. So when we passed the National Beef Checkoff in 1985, Tennessee formed their own Tennessee Beef Industry Council. So I was selected by the Cattlemen's Association to represent them the Tennessee Cattlemen, on this Beef Industry Council. And that's really the way it got started. Then the council elected me to represent them on a national level, first at the National Livestock and Meat Board uh, before the merger, which then became a part of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So through the years, as I represented Tennessee on the board, I've chaired a lot of national committees. And then um, a few years ago, uh, when the children were older, got asked, are you interested in moving up at this time? I turned down a chance a little bit earlier, and I said yes. I was a regional vice president for the southeastern region. I then worked my way up chairman and vice chairman of the Federation of State Beef Councils, chairman of the policy side then um, for a year, and then the top three officers over the last three years. So, Jennifer, you've been involved in the beef industry for over 30 years, which is pretty amazing. Um, And it sounds like you've had several leadership roles How did you position yourself, I guess, to be in those leadership roles? Yeah, great question. I think really just being being willing and being engaged. You know, I I really have a a strong feeling that when you represent an organization, it really doesn't matter what level, uh, then when you're there, you need to to speak up and represent whatever group you're there. And uh, maybe because I always had no hesitation about speaking up, (laughs) uh, that tends to be sometimes... Who asked to be in leadership and just being willing to do whatever, you know, mm-hmm. whichever committee uh, that needed a leader or that someone asked me to do, I was always willing because I just think it's so important that we we advocate for ourselves. Nobody else is going to do it for us. Right. That's right. Nobody will. Um, Jennifer, what's been the most rewarding part about being both in the cattle industry for so long and then also as a part of uh, NCBA? A couple of things. I think number one, the people. Uh, I still tell people that's the best part of my job now is going out to state cattlemen's associations. But through the years, even when I didn't get to travel to their associations, just the people that I've met through the committee activity, through the Federation of State Beef Council, through the state cattlemen's association, uh, those are lifetime friendships. Uh, You know, I see friends that I met when I was 20-something that now positions at uh, USDA or they're in different commodity groups. It's, it's sort of neat to say, you know, gosh, we knew each other, even though we're from different parts of the country 20 years ago. The other thing is really watching the, uh, the changes 
you know, the, the ideas, especially on the innovation of the Beef Council that have come into being, that you watched them as they were first an idea, um, and then it comes to fruition and you see something that's a success. Uh, that's, that's a pretty cool feeling. I feel like I, I, I'm with you on that. And I mean, you know, there can be I'm, in the agriculture industry when you're dealing with commodities and, and the ups and downs that come with that, you know, like it's no different, I think, sometimes than maybe dealing with a small business or mm-hmm. you guys are dealing with a small business or maybe a large one. But it's like these ups and downs and the people that you have on your path along the way make it like seem a little less jagged maybe when you're at the top or bottom, no right? No question. They smooth the rough spots out. You've got someone to talk to, knowing that there's people there that are struggling with the same things you are or going through the good times uh, with you either one. Yeah, yeah. I did see that at, at a point in your history, I think you were engaged in the cattle women. Uh, and have you kind of simultaneously been engaged in both um, men's, I, I don't want to call it the men's organization, NCBA is for yeah. anybody, right? But then the cattle women separately. Not really simultaneously. Uh, that was earlier. Tennessee, in fact, has had struggled to get uh, uh, a cattle women's organization uh, stable uh-huh. through the years. Uh, I just sort of found that that, that my niche was really uh, or policy, yep. and um, and as well as the checkoff. And so I just, that was just sort of the way, you know, the cattle women do good work. Um, and I don't take away from the places they have strong cattle women's organizations yeah. as to what they're able to do. But, but sort of as after just a few years, that was just sort of the path uh, that, that I took about the things that interested me. Yep. Yep. That, and it all does, like you said, depend on uh, who's engaged and what's going on in that state. We see that. Uh, all over the place, obviously, very differently. Well, you know, I I think it's so important to highlight women in roles like this. And so uh, here's where I'm going to talk about (laughs) the fact that Jennifer is uh, only the third woman to hold this title in the long history of the NCBA, which I think is is so very important. I mean, we always we always preach, you know, if you can see it, you can go do it. And uh, the more women that we see in roles like this, I think it paves the way for others to say, you know, yeah, I could go do that or I want to go do that. So, uh, Jennifer, on that note, um, what does it mean to you to be only the third woman um, in this position? You know, it's, it's really not something I thought about a lot until until I got the position and, and get a lot of questions about it. I think the, the important thing is that there's going to be a lot more after me, I feel certain, and I don't think it'll be as long a time between. I see all the uh, women that we have in leadership roles at the committee level, on the executive committee, even on my officer team, and um, it, it won't be so long. It's great, and I think, uh, I won't say a different perspective, but I think sometimes it is, not always. Uh, I don't think we're, we're apples and oranges, but sometimes there is a different perspective on where you've done. I think the, the biggest thing is I tell women that I talk to them is just get involved. Uh, sometimes we're a little more willing to, to dive deep and to, to get our hands dirty and, and do a lot of the, the grunt work, whether it's writing letters to our congressman or making comments on the hours of service or whatever. I think sometimes women are able to t- will take that extra time. Uh, not that men can't, but they will take that extra time to do some of those things that are so important to our uh, policy efforts in D.C. 
So Jennifer, if there is a young lady that's wanting to maybe take that role one day, where do you um, suggest that she gets started with NCBA? Is it at the local level? Are there state chapters that she can get involved in? Yeah, absolutely. At the, at the local level, you know, most most every county either has a county or a multi-county or district type local thing, and I, that's obviously where to start. But then, don't be afraid to talk to uh, state officers and say, in every every state is different too, and how they're set up. But you know, if you have a committee system in your state, say, hey, I'd like to serve on the uh, promotion committee, or I'd like to serve on the legislative committee whatever sort of find, I tell people to find their passion, whatever interests them and just do not be shy. Don't wait for somebody to come uh, ask you sometimes uh, tell, tell the leaders, Hey, I would like to, to sit in on that, or I would like to be a part of that. And um, so at the state level, and then when you, you know, you sort of get your, your marks at the state level, then obviously you can work on representing your state at the national level. Uh, but it really, I think takes involvement at the local district state uh, first, because that's really your pathway to get to NCBA or most any board, really. Yeah, I, I love that. Personally, you can't just wait for somebody to come and tell you that you should be doing it or should go after it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's great advice, Jennifer. Yeah. I, I We talk about that a lot at our grow events, right? Like be a cheerleader for somebody else, but you mm-hmm. can't always wait for that cheerleader too. Like sometimes mm-hmm. you just got to jump in and do it and ask and maybe mess up a little bit and, and figure out your way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's see. So as we were talking about, this is women's history month. And I think that a conversation with a woman in a position like yours matters just a little bit more this month as we highlight some of those amazing things that women are doing out there. Um, so let's talk about a network of support, Jennifer. What, what's your network? My network is a, a wonderful husband. Um, I have two great children. One, one, my daughter is uh, very much a woman in ag. She is the director of governmental affairs for the American Seed Trade Association in D.C. So I'm very proud of what she's done. My son is getting his doctorate in biosystems engineering UT. So they're they're my two cheerleaders. Um, the guy who lets me get things done is my husband. He's he's here. He says somebody's got to stay at home and work running the market and the farm uh, on the day-to-day basis. And I have a great staff at the market that, that are able to, to do sale day stuff. And I still keep the books and it just sort of waits till I get home, whatever. <laughs> They're always there. So when I'm home, I just, you know, <laughs> yes, whatever, whatever, what's my next crisis? What's my next report that's due? And sometimes uh, Mark, really, my husband has to step in this weekend. I was gone for about eight days straight and it was payroll time. And that's one of those things that can't wait. So we're on the phone, you know, as I'm traveling, uh, sort of talking him through doing payroll. So great support system. My mother's up here with us. And so she sort of helps cook for Mark and keep all the errands run and uh, things like that. So I do have a good support system. I really do. And you can't, you have to, you can't be a one man show and travel this much. I don't, I don't mean that in an ugly way. It's just not possible. If you are the person that has to do everything at your operation, you can't do it. Yes. Um, just too much time away from home. As the newly elected president of the NCBA, what goals do you have for 2019? I know you've been doing a lot of traveling. What's something that you would really like to see done? What I've been telling everybody this year is, is I've traveled over the last couple, three years, 
uh, getting ready for this is there's a lot more that unites us than divides us. And, and I think it's human nature to focus on what divides us. But there's so few of us in agriculture uh, that we have to focus on what we agree on. And for most of us, whether it's different factions within a state organization, a county organization, or even national organizations, we agree on more things than we disagree on. So let's focus on those things, and that's the way we move things ahead. Uh, we may never agree on some things. And that's really sort of been my theme. And, and if I can get just a little of that done, and we are, we're seeing things, we're working together you know, with coalitions such as hours of service for our livestock truckers, uh, you know, fake meat to a certain extent. Um, all of these things, you know, we're not out there alone. We're working together uh, as an industry to move things forward. Yeah. And, and along that theme, like you said, it doesn't happen on, on its own on a farm level. It doesn't happen on its own on an industry level, right? It takes, it takes involvement from many different types. And I think that's an interesting point. You know, if I look back over the years of farm hair, one of the things I do think that women uh, distinctly bring to the industry is that ability to communicate. But when I look across them, like I can go to a urban farm in Austin, Texas, and that same day go to a commercial cattle operation, you know, two hours outside of town. And like these women are completely different, but at the heart of who they are, they're, they're really fighting for the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the care of the land, the care of their community, their, their animals that they raise. And I think that that's a wonderful uh, thing that you're bringing to NCBA in, in that discussion that like we can all get together on this. Well, and I appreciate that. And, that. and that's another goal of mine is if we can just get that, uh, we fight so many misperceptions are, are about, we, if we farm in a large um, way that we're a commercial industrial farm, and I tell people it really doesn't matter the scale. No. Usually it's a, it's, a, it's a family, or at least a caring group of individuals out there fighting for that. And we've got to get that message across that doesn't matter the scale the care, the passion, the love for the land, the love for the animals, the stewardship uh, is the same. And, and we, we're, I think we find a tough battle on social media Oh yeah, uh, with that. And, and it really frustrates me. And so if we can get just a little of that done this year, uh, we're in good shape. I love it. We're almost out of time, Jennifer. How can people connect with you? Uh, you can uh, talk to or call beefusa.org. And they can get in touch with me. Uh, they've got my email. It's jhouston at beef.org. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for what you're doing for the industry. Thanks for having me. It's good to talk to y'all. We are wrapping up this very cool episode where we've talked to some women who have um, paved the way, really. And they may not have been the first, but they're right up there in the top of women who um, have held positions in organizations. And I, I think that's so important. And we talk about it a lot, obviously, that, you know, if you can see it, you can go do it. And, um, you know, there there's so many different organizations out there to get involved in. So getting involved, as Jennifer said, is is the first step. And whether it's a women's leadership organization or a, a industry-wide one, you know, whether it's a cattle men's or the cattle women's, I think that we all have uh, our places that we feel comfortable at. But uh, talking a little bit about the differences and maybe how women are leaders or how women network and walk into a room. Jen, I know you just had a, an interesting thought on this. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think, you know, men and women lead differently and I think their approach is a little bit different and especially to networking. 
Um, when women network or they walk into a room, it's a little more, I guess, comfortable maybe for them to find commonalities between each other. It's also an easier um, introduction to try and figure out, okay, you know, what can, how can we start this conversation based on what we have in common? Right. It makes it, a, it kind of relaxes the room a little bit. Right. Um, yeah. I think that's, yeah, an interesting Versus, like, way. leading with like your like, resume like, a yeah. little bit. Here's who I am. This is what I do <laughs> yeah. type of thing. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think that's just indicative of women in general and how, how mm-hmm. we are. And it, it's not saying like men are, are worse at this or better. Right. You know, it's just, we are so different mm-hmm. in how we deal with these things. Yeah. We feel comfortable in different ways networking. And that reminded me of a tip that Aaron Cummings um, with Nationwide mm-hmm. presented to some of our girls at the Grow events it's lead with a compliment. That's always the easiest way to do it for women mm-hmm. anyway. I mean, if you like a piece of jewelry they have on or a blouse that they have on or their shoes, the shoes are e- really easy to lead with. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead and lead that way. And then it just naturally flows into a conversation about maybe what you do, um, who you work for, things like that. Yeah, I love it. I was just reading this article uh, called Battle the Sexes, Male versus Female Leadership and talking about like, it's it's not a competition. It's mm-hmm. just that our brains really are wired very differently. Mm-hmm. And I do think that like this leading with something more comfortable is it, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel less stressed out <laughs> to try to connect with somebody over something versus establish like my dominance or or lack of dominance. Right. <laughs> Probably more likely. I'm usually the one to be like, I want you to feel comfortable, you know? Yeah. And I think it's a little intimidating to, you know, immediately start a conversation and hear someone's resume because mm-hmm. your resume may have nothing to do with who you are and how you approach, you know, a subject or a business. Um, and if someone were to immediately leave with their resume and it was really intimidating, I would naturally immediately want to shy away from that person. (laughs) I think that's so hard when someone's like, what, what, like, give me your background. Where, where did you work or what did you do? I'm like, well, like this title means nothing Mm -hmm. about who I am, Mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, it's, um, it well in this article, it goes on to say that women's brains are better at verbally explaining their emotions. So we feel the need to share our feelings and expect other people to share them in return. And so in the workplace, when female leaders might ask how you're feeling about something, and this probably goes towards networking too, right? Like, how, how do you feel about this? Or let's mm-hmm. talk about it emotionally instead of asking, like, give me the progress or like, tell me how this mm-hmm. works, you mm-hmm. know? So I can say that that's probably but definitely the category I sit in when I'm asking about something. I don't want to be like, give me the numbers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's interesting. So on that note, uh, we at FarmHer obviously believe that it is a very, very important thing for us all to connect with each other, to be able to grow and expand ourselves within this industry or as human beings in general, as women who, you know, maybe in our uh, families, communities, where, wherever we are participating, um, we think it's pretty important to uh, be around your people on a regular basis. And thanks for joining us. Yeah.